This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. So welcome back to the second part of our discussion on mindfulness and how it's been appropriated in the West and to the mainstream sports psychology practices. I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Marisa Ginto and Dr. Dev Roychotri, with whom I had the pleasure to work together on an article examining these issues in the past two years. And in the first part of the discussion, we explored some of the historical background of mindfulness and covered some of the processes that have enabled mindfulness to become one of the central parts of sports psychology practice as we know it today. And so we've just had a nice break between after the first part and Dev started talking something about beer yoga and all these other intriguing practices he has encountered recently. So Dev, why don't you give us a little introduction to beer yoga before we get into other things? (laughs) (laughs) I would at the very outright say I have no expertise in beer yoga or any form of two-minute karate or martial arts that will, you know, allay all your fears and suffering. Um, um, Yeah, it was just something I noticed. I was just mentioning earlier during um, our break um, that during the lockdowns in Melbourne, when they were temporarily lifted, um, I happened to go and, and pick up some food from a, a nearest eatery. And on my way back, I was on foot. So as I was walking back, I noticed, you know, um, uh, adverts placed on on the wind um, windows of, of, of this particular place where they advertised, you know, certain services that were at best uh, questionable. Um, and so, yeah, the beer yoga comment came from there where, you know, beer yoga or some form of mindful tantric healing practices that will, you know, solve all your problems um, was being advertised. And I found that quite problematic. It took me a while to take it all in and, and comprehend what they were actually trying to do. Um, but at, I think that goes to the crux of what we have been discussing, the adaptation um and cultural appropriation of of mindfulness. Now, I don't think like we have to reorient ourselves and and realize that there are certainly worthy dimensions to a mindfulness practice. And so we're not in any way saying that um, people who have encountered mindfulness who come from a non-Asian background and they have attempted to take it back to, you know, wherever they came from in, in, in an attempt to help others is not a noble cause. It is. Um, so that is not the problem. In fact, I would go as far as saying that, you know, something like that must be encouraged and uh, appreciated. 
the the problem however lies in the packaging of mindfulness like marisa was saying earlier what wilson has outlined because the new age mindfulness gurus and merchants who are selling books um and and dvds and and beer yogas and healing practices they'll have you believe that you know stress occurs in your head and um what makes you unhappy or stressed in your life is your inability to pay attention uh in the present moment um uh, being being mindful and so the cheerleaders of this movement uh, are sort of enamored by this revolutionary aim of saving the world by using commodified packaged mindfulness in a very privatized pathologized manner which is essentially um problematic now have we been here before absolutely um i've read um works by scholars where they've mentioned this being done to karate for instance where martial arts um when taken to the west did not retain its original form um yoga again i gave an example um i have attended this was a couple of years ago i attended a a hot yoga session which um i could best describe as an aerobic session a, a high intensity interval training session but they had packaged it calling yoga and th- there was nothing yogic about it um but i think that that's the the essence of the the problem of sometimes pathologizing something that does not need pathologizing and conversely uh, sometimes looking at something that perhaps needs a more nuanced understanding um then what uh, ends up being afforded so i guess um yeah it's it's a very fragile constitution if you look at the the psychological or even metaphysical um makeup of how mindfulness is being constructed or construed currently there's essentially a danger that everything is being attributed to the unmindful athlete for not doing the best which again is is atypical of mindfulness practice so the practice the purpose of mindfulness practice is not to do mindfulness it's it's to be mindful so there's certainly a conflict and um i guess yeah beer yoga and and tantric healing just sort of it's the icing on the cake it just highlights how deeply infected this this disease um has become actually one dimension that we haven't i saw like a popular article in the in the national news of some weeks ago in finland that there was some new study that was saying that mindfulness can make people who are already self-centered uh for them to become even more self-centered in a way that you know if the focus is you should focus on yourself and how you feel and how you experience the moment that then your world just centers on on you and yourself <laughs> yeah yeah i i totally agree i i recently i think tweeted something uh, the bbc came out with um could have been last saturday or the week before where they reported exactly what you've just mentioned that people have become a bit more selfish and a bit more insular which again goes against the the whole fundamental relational community aspect of um of mindfulness so yeah it'd be interesting to watch this space well actually yeah i would just like to elaborate on what dev um was talking about because it really f- um feels very um foreign and alienating to see how mindfulness has become um you know like a religion of the self and as you mentioned nora that uh, people are noticing that 
you know, the, the focus on the person's ability to mindfully, quote-unquote, um, manage his thoughts and be aware, completely aware of one's thoughts. Um, it's building this whole um, new religion and value system that focuses on the individual. Yet, when we look at the original um, and the roots of uh, mindfulness, we see there what Dev said as being and the collective aspect of um, mindfulness, which I think is uh, sorely missing in the way it has been appropriated by the West. Because, um, for instance, in, in our own culture, although we are not Buddhist and um, definitely we, we, we cannot claim um, to um, originate the whole practice. But as we are appropriating it in our own culture, we realize that focusing on the self will definitely alienate a lot of people because that is not uh, a core value in our culture. However, when we look at how uh, definitions from the East incorporate, for example, um, the ability to be compassionate uh, okay, in terms of looking at oneself and and also being kind to oneself as we are being kind to others, then that is more um how would you say relevant to us, so the kindness to oneself and others, the compassion for oneself and others is something that um is not found or is not packaged in the way the western um a view of mindfulness appears at the moment. And, and so I guess even as a, um, a, a participant in a, um, in a seminar, as I was telling you uh, earlier, that I uh, joined uh, that was run by foreigners, that was something that we, the participants who are all Filipinos, were all really discussing why is it so focused on the self? It feels very uncomfortable. And why are they talking about dosage and frequency, you know, all these behaviors when mindfulness, as mentioned by, by Dev, is being mindful. Um, and yet the, the focus is doing mindfulness. And uh, so that was also my observation, I suppose, uh, when we were together at the uh, FEPSA conference, um, the whole packaging and the whole need to to um, record the dosage frequency was very disturbing to me. And I, I suppose that's part of um, really mainstreaming it in uh, the, the whole scientific um, framework of uh, understanding and experience. So um, I, I suppose that's where we are now. now how do we now appropriately um, view this and use this, given that we are in this part of our history where we've seen a lot of um, applications of uh, mindfulness and we've also acknowledged that there is a, a disconnect from where it all began. Where do we go from here? I suppose, you know, that that's going to be the, our conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's the difference essentially of, um, I don't want to make a class divide of, you know, the East versus West, but it certainly seems that there is a, a spiritual versus a capitalistic difference. You know, the whole whole purpose of spiritual um, uh, enlightenment or liberation enshrined in say Eastern contemplative philosophies is is that seeking behavior where you're seeking to transcend uh, your own current 
understanding of yourself, you know, to, to go beyond yourself and realize your true, true essence, which is different from using spirituality to sort of become ambitious in, in climbing the spiritual ladder as if, you know, if I do mindfulness, um, you know, more than you, then I am somehow more spiritually inclined and uh, spiritually enlightened than, than you, which is a very, very wrong um, understanding of what spirituality entails or what mindfulness entails. And so from a sport and exercise psychology perspective, let's say, uh, you know, alluding to what Marissa was saying earlier about dosage, uh, as a scientific endeavor, um, sure, you know, we can be curious about, you know, how much mindfulness can help. But then I wonder and I worry if that will create a sort of a divide where it's been mandated that you must do 20 minutes of five sessions of mindfulness session um, to become the spiritual um, leader in, in, in the pack. You know, uh, let's say it's a team sport. Um, where is this headed? Because I can guarantee pretty much that even the man mandatory compulsory five sessions of 20 minutes of mindfulness will not help you in the long run because you're missing the, the context, you're missing the point here. Um, so that's certainly something that I hope scholarship takes up um, in the near future. Otherwise, mindfulness runs the risk of becoming another you know, fad like we've discussed in our paper. Um, and then we'll be hunting another tool or technique from another spiritual tradition. And I think one of the big issues with this cultural adaptation of mindfulness and who is doing the work is that pretty much all the leading scholars working with mindfulness are from a Euro-American context, pretty much. This is what comes out in the review of how mindfulness has been used in sport and exercise psychology as well. So I'm just wondering, because you you are involved in um, Asian communities of sports psychology. Are you having this broader discussions with with colleagues and people who are located in a more Eastern uh, discourse and understanding of mindful mindfulness? So is this a concern that is uh, being discussed more broadly? Um, I'd like to share on that, Nora, because I'd, I actually conversed about this with some colleagues, you know, in... Um, Asian countries, and the, the 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 conclusion is, if we do not um, subscribe to the mainstream definition and study of mindfulness, we will never get our work published. That's the bottom line. If we introduce another way of studying it in a more qualitative manner, perhaps, or let's say we wanted to study lifestyle of mindfulness or any of those collective. Um, lenses used in mindfulness, we won't see our work published. And that is a sad um, state of what um, publication would entail, especially if most publications are are managed or hosted by Euro-American um, publishers. Where do we start? You know, where do we begin to articulate and um, occupy the verbal space, so to speak, in terms of... Um, conversing, discussing, discoursing mindfulness in the Eastern part. And of course, like what Deb said, the idea is not to create a divide, but to provide, you know, the verbal space for Asians or Eastern um, practitioners and scholars to be able to join in the discussion without having to subscribe to what is acceptable to mainstream um 
psychology, uh, more particularly sport and exercise psychology? Yeah, I think I think I agree with um, with Marissa. Um, and like the the state of affairs that we find ourselves in is quite complicated because there are a lot of you know capitalistic interests involved. There are different parties who have got different agendas. Um, and so depending on where you stand um, on, on which side of the aisle, it pretty much dictates uh, where you can go from there. So I completely understand where Marisa is coming from. And I've had similar conversations. In fact, um, um, we recently edited a special issue on mindfulness in the um, in our inaugural journal of Asian sport and exercise psychology. And um, I've had you know, submissions where people have submitted their work on mindfulness and I've given them feedback, but essentially it was a very um, Euro-American view of mindfulness. And um, some authors, for example, this one group of um, authors, they refuse to acknowledge um, the historical background of mindfulness. Uh, And essentially they said, look, you know, we have have cited uh, Kabat-Zinn and um, because that's uh, that's part of the scholarly framework now, uh, we think this will suffice. We don't need to go back and change or acknowledge what happened in the history. And so if you're trying to develop scholarship in this area and you're trying to submit to good journals, but they um, do not want to entertain that sort of scholarship, then obviously where do you go from there? Um, even within Asia, uh, I think there is, uh, going back to your original question, Noura, there is concern and, and some people are focusing on that. But I guess there's so much diversity in Asia that when you talk about, say, mindfulness, um, it certainly, with certain factions, it plays to their strengths if you say it came from Buddhism, because let's say they represent the Buddhist camp um, versus a, a different one. So these factions certainly will cause friction. Um, I'm hoping, like going back to our original point, I'm just hoping that there is more cross-cultural research uh, in this topic where we acknowledge where we have come from, we acknowledge what we are doing right now, good or bad, uh, helpful or unhelpful, and then slowly as the scholarship uh, proceeds and develops, um, as it evolves, we are able to weed out some of these problematic issues that have plagued the area and the field, and we can proceed with um, good research and work where everyone feels acknowledged. And it's not a matter of whether I'm right or you are wrong. It's a matter of what happened, what's happening now, and what should happen moving forward. Um, and with that, the the special issue we we had, I'm I'm quite grateful to PSC and and, and especially um, Tatiana and and Natalia for you know editing this special issue because I know they've also had issues getting reviewers and to review this concept because not everyone wanted to, I guess, um, delve into this this topic, which on the face of it is sort of controversial. Um, and so, yeah, it has to be a multi-pronged effort where institutions, uh, independent scholars, um, scholars of, of say, mindfulness or, or, or contemplative philosophies, corporate houses, um, everyone has to chip in. Um, you can't on your own um, do this. It will be a long endeavor. So I think everyone has to chip in and, and realize the, the risks we run. Um, and if that happens, then I'm pretty sure we, we'll be in good stead. But if not, then that's a, that's a gloomy future we're, we're looking at. Yeah, I think trying to 
a little bit zoom out from the discussion. And if we think of, you mentioned karate, we mentioned yoga and, and those things. And I think part of why they are attractive to Western audiences is that there are people who are looking for more spiritual ways of living, perhaps in Western countries with religion losing ground, people are turning into different kind of life philosophies, different kind of spiritualities. And for example, martial arts being one of these contexts that have been in some ways antithetical to some of the higher, faster, stronger values of Western sports. But then what we do see, and if we do take mindfulness as an example, is that often when these practices come and perhaps there is this interest in a more spiritual way of living and all those things, then quickly they are being appropriated to the Western mindset. And we can see when new, when martial arts, for example, when they become Olympic sports and they have to be appropriated into this higher, faster, stronger logic again. And often in these transnational encounters, it's the Western belief system and worldview that tends to dominate. So in some ways, <laughs> we could be a little bit depressed about this whole situation that, you know, these ideas maybe promise people a different way of living. But at the end, for example, this example you have given about athletes, that then it's one more a tool in their mental skills package and one more thing that they have to master in their pursuit of winning. So then it actually becomes just one little part of this system that hasn't essentially changed that much. One question we were asked is from a reviewer was that if you think of the elite sports system and it is what it is and winning is important and all those things. So the reviewer was asking, like, can you even imagine mindfulness being practiced in some different form? So maybe just share your thoughts a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, could I just like um, anchor with what you mentioned also as, you know, the value system, because in the recent Olympics, they added together um, among the, three higher stronger faster now it's together um so that for me was a significant um development in the olympic spirit because together there there that is a very very um i would say um it is a, a reflection of also the collective view um and i don't want again to divide the east and west but that is so acceptable um i think to the eastern um value of uh, care for each other so that's one now talking about elite sports of course we cannot uh, we cannot uh, help that our elite athletes want something that that is provable okay that will help them and so when we talk about mindfulness application in my personal um, experience I speak about it really as uh, not as a practice or you know, that they have to do dosages and frequencies because I'm really, really resistant to that. Um, 
um, personally, and I don't think that would sit well with our um, athletes to be counting the times that they practice. But more um, mindfulness as really um, expanding one's awareness of what's happening inside them and around them and being able to understand better, you know, how they could move forward um, using that kind of awareness. So it's not anymore simply a practice, but as Dev mentioned earlier, it's a way of being an athlete where you are able to get in touch with what's happening at the moment inside you and around you, and also be more sensitive to your teammates and uh, to your coach and to everybody who is like participating in that sport event. Uh, I speak of it more as foundational to, to doing any form of uh, psychological skills or approaches, as you may call it. And I think it's a two-way thing. No, I, We from the East are also guilty of appropriating um, practices from the West, especially in sport and exercise psychology, where we all began with the, uh, you know, PST, psychological skills training. And I remember in the beginning of my own practice, all I did was to really read all these handbooks, manuals, you know, resources that all came from the West to legitimize my practice here in the country. And looking back, I realized that it's part of our journey, you know, to be to 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 survey the the playing field, so to speak, and to see how we can appropriate um, beliefs, uh, practices from all over the world, and see how we can use it. I don't think we are we're necessarily criticizing that process of surveying and borrowing and appropriating because you know we're we're one world. However, I think what we tried to point out in our uh, research is, you know, the acknowledgement of the roots of uh, what we are practicing and borrowing because it doesn't come in isolation to its roots because there is wisdom there to how it all began. And so um, personally, I, I would invite ourselves and our colleagues also to just do that, you know, to acknowledge it. There is no danger. We are not compelled to do it exactly the way it began, but to see it in context so that when we appropriate it, we know we are appropriating something that has a cultural uh, background and that when we apply it, that we are also applying it in a cultural context. So even for for us here in the Philippines, whatever it is that we borrow from or appropriate from the West or even from our neighbors in Asia, we need to be very, very intentional in acknowledging um, its beginnings and where we are taking it in our own context. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense, <laughs> Nura. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Deb, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I think like what you were saying earlier about the Olympic Valleys, um, you know, the pursuit of an incessant growth, um, you know, with the Olympic motto, uh, placing placing them at the, at the core, um, you know, developing better, stronger and faster athletes. And in my opinion, it's you're looking at the, the glass half full or, or let's say half empty. 
Um, something we've mentioned in our paper that, you know, having these goals of de developing, you know, faster, fitter athletes without the parallel aims of, say, personal growth and satisfaction, um, a stable sort of psyche, emotional regulation, it may go um, against what we're trying to achieve. Um, from a research perspective, we haven't really looked at the other side. So we have looked at, you know, and this is more of, uh, you know, I, I think it came after the Industrial Revolution where you push people, you know, the more you or the harder you push, the better the results you get. And that form of thinking that, you know, when you push someone, you know, too hard, um, it will produce results. Somehow, uh, for a lot of scholars and researchers, it seems to make um, intuitive sense. But for me, it's counterintuitive. So, for, for example, if you're doing psychotherapy from a relational perspective, if you're going to drive your partner to the extreme, they'll either go crazy or they'll leave you. So pushing people to the extreme um, can work in certain cases. Uh, I certainly have, you know, having served in the military, I can, I can uh, certainly understand why certain customs and rituals have their place. But it can't be a be-all and end-all for, for, for everything. And that's the other side of the aisle that we have not explored. So while Western thinking, rationalistic, um, binary sort of thinking has had a long history of placing great emphasis on um, the religious and the secular, the Eastern traditional practices have had an even longer philosophy of, of placing holism and universalism, inclusiveness, diversity as essential components of the basic transcendental human experience. And that is something that has been completely missing from mindfulness research and practice. So it's not uncommon to, to talk or hear about dosage, frequency, um, sessions, how many minutes of this, how many minutes of that, trait versus state mindfulness. But the essential questions about the context, essential questions about the spiritual aspects of it, the foundation, um, the metaphysical inquiry is completely ignored. Um, which, again, to me is counterintuitive and even detrimental because you're denying that aspect of human behavior, human experience, human sentiment, and human emotion. And you're driving people up the wall because you subscribe to this one notion or understanding of mindfulness that the more you do, the better you get. Where do you draw the line? How do you essentially delineate? Um, the good parts of mindfulness from some of the dark sides of meditation or mindfulness that we now know also exist. Um, so that again can be can be problematic. Something again, I'm I'm hoping um, we will be able to address um, in the near future. Yeah, we had a symposium in in, Feb, uh, in the recent ISSP conference uh, that was held online and. Natalia was the discussant for this symposium and she was really pushing us from the critique is here, but you know, so what, <laughs> what can you do with it? And that's a difficult question. Maybe just a few closing thoughts on where you think we could try to move from here. What could be some of the future directions? Um, I have some thoughts, which I think we started, um, we mentioned also in, towards the end of our um, discussion in the paper where we called out the current applications and the problematic areas. But at the same time, we also um, made suggestions on um, privileging 
quantitative approaches over qualitative approaches of studying, examining this experience, um, which, of course, when you look at the literature um, and what is accepted by mainstream publications, lean toward the quantitative approaches. And perhaps as we try to explore the non um, measurable and numerical aspects of the experience, then we have to turn to qualitative uh, frames of approaching this. Because if you're talking here about a, a, a lifestyle, a, a more than just a practice, a, a way of being, how do you measure that? Therefore, we need to be open to other forms of examination. If we are talking here about, you know, what's next now, what's the agenda? Well, from the research point of view, we have to be bold enough to to um, publish, you know, um, non-quantitative forms of inquiry, um, no matter how small steps they are, because when we are talking about a way of being and a way of approaching, even in the field of sport and exercise psychology, and this has been really a, an ongoing discussion, even with the elite athletes I work with, you know, when they ask me how would they know if they are mindful enough, that is a difficult question. And how do they know that they are mindful while they're playing and um and all of these concerns of, uh, you know, highly competitive athletes. But we need to open the discussion. I think we need to be um, courageous enough to talk about these non-measurable aspects of um, mindfulness in sport and exercise um, and how we might be able to uh, open um, possibilities of publication that may not be um, adhering to the template of mainstream um, discourse and publication. So there must be like, you know, opening the culturally competent research and practice. This, this must be part, part of that uh, journey. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Marisa said. Um, you know, the first uh, step to pro solving a, a problem is, is accepting that we have one. So I think the first point of, you know, the, the course of action would be to acknowledge that there is a risk um, here um, of mindfulness turning into, you know, another new age DIY solution that does not really help in the long long term because it's, you know, it's been so far removed from what, what it was. You might as well call it something else. Um, so that would be the first step. Um, related to that would also be acknowledging how and, and why mindfulness has been commodified what purpose does it fulfill um, and who does it serve? Because um, if you figure those out, you can work backwards and realize, you know, what's been done to mindfulness and, and for what reason. And so you can probably do a little bit of course correction and, and figure out what needs to be adapted, what needs to be changed, what needs to be learned from um, so that you can use mindfulness and, and concepts related to, you know, other cognate topics related to mindfulness. Um, reaching across the aisle would be another way to create uh, inclusive discourse where people, regardless of whether they're from East or West, um, sit down and make an agenda for helping each other understand where they're coming from, their practices. Um, if I have to understand, you know, practices prevalent in, in Finland, um, I should be able to contact Nura and say, look, I, I'm, I'm foreign to this. I don't really understand. Uh, can you help me out? 
we would do that on a daily basis. If I were to travel um, to, to Europe, and I, let's say I've never traveled to Europe, I have, but let's say for this example, I shouldn't have an issue asking Nura, how do I travel from point A to point B? So it should be as simple as that. And then acknowledging that I don't know much, reading up uh, and having that discourse where you contact traditional scholars and practitioners to understand the fundamentals, but you also have your modern take on it. You put it through rigorous scientific experiments, uh, which mindfulness and meditation in general has had in the past, um, but you stay true to, to that. Introducing these concepts at graduate school uh, would be another um, uh, good development, I would say, where you introduce practitioners and, and students um, to traditional forms, the adaptations. You teach them as it is um, so that they can understand the, the philosophical foundations um, of, of mindfulness and how as society changes and transforms, Perhaps these practices also need to be transformed, but who will do it and how should they be done? So there needs to be a concerted effort where everyone comes together um, and makes a, makes an effort that is not driven by ulterior capitalistic motives. You have to do it as a scholarly pursuit, um, and then you can, you know, branch out and and really spread the word. I, I suppose. So I guess, you know, podcasts like this, um, papers like the one we have done with PSE, uh, it's just a start. And if we talk more about it, if we spread the word, more people see value in it. Um, uh, for example, your, your listeners, if they find value in this and can read up um, more on this topic, um, I think that that would be a great start. Yeah, so many good ideas. And we started with Dev to, just to say that First, we have to consider whether there is a problem. We are not the only ones who have said that there might be a problem. I mean, these discussions are much further on in other fields than ours. I think Spartan exercise psychology is maybe a little bit behind in these debates and kind of the critical input, input from various scholars. So I'm very hopeful that dialogues will continue. In, in this transnational space and new ideas will be introduced and we can all learn to be more mindful in how, how we approach what we do and what kind of approaches we are using. So it's been really a wonderful discussion. I enjoyed it a lot. I, we discussed it many times, the three of us before, but I still think that I got some new insight and new ideas. I, I really appreciate that. And um, I will link the paper to show notes. People can take a look. And I think we are done. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Nura. Thanks for, for doing this um, and inviting us. I'm hoping everyone gets, um, you know, all the listeners get some value out of it. And if anyone is interested, um, please get in touch with us. Um, and we'd be more than happy to, to share notes, talk more about it. Uh, we're always keen to learn. And um, yeah, it'd be great if you can leave a note, uh, whether on this podcast, help Nura out, or also get in touch with me. And hope, hopefully we will be able to continue this good work forward. 
Yeah, thank you to Nora, Nora for this initiative. Again, I'd like to um, affirm your efforts to popularize and uh, make it easier for people to appreciate research, uh, especially in physical activity and related topics in your podcast. So congratulations for this initiative. And again, thank you to Dev and Nora for uh, this uh, ongoing teamwork um, regarding um, our uh, collaboration. Thank you to the both of you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.